what Isaiah's was when he heard you speak. Oh, here am I, Lord, please use my life for your Okay, welcome everybody to the next Bible study and podcast. This is a great crowd, uh, probably since after the first podcast, this may be the, the next biggest crowd. I appreciate you all doing this and coming out, showing interest. I actually am not the one doing this. I did not set this up. I did not put this together. Uh, Brother Caleb, Sister Charity, some of the staff here at the Saving Place came up with the idea, put it together, sponsored it, and they've been doing all the, the labor and the work behind it. They just want to know if I would teach, and so far I've been teaching, and maybe at times other people teach, I don't know, but uh, if you keep coming and you keep asking the questions and, and you still need answers, I'll do my best to study them out, and um, we'll keep doing this. If you don't have any need for this, uh, I, can, I can surely do something else. Um, I think this is the ninth podcast. Maybe only like the seventh one that we're actually doing live. And I know I keep telling you that we're going to get to shorter and shorter subject matters, shorter and shorter pieces, and that we are uh, going to have more and more Q&A time. We can have as much Q&A time as you want. That's no problem. As all of you that were here last time found out, we'll, we'll question and answer afterwards as long as you want to. That's no problem at all. Um, Sister Amanda, you can if you wanted to. I'm not telling you to, but you can go around. It's a full circle. Um, so what what we're doing right now, I, I keep saying we're going to get to shorter material and, and more Q&A. If we want to just have a Q&A session one time, we can do that. This material is big material. It's, a, it's hard for me to take a subject like this and do it in 15, 20 minutes. I could break it up into three or four sessions maybe. Um, but, but that's complicated for me too. I had a smaller piece of material. Matter of fact, those of you here last time, we ended the recording and then there were some questions asked about, uh, divorce and, and remarriage and adultery and how the church sees that and, and different things. And we talked and talked and talked and talked about that, brought up all kinds of scriptures and went around the room and, uh, different preachers talked about it and different people gave their questions and their answers. So that, that went on. The only problem is that was not recorded. Maybe that was just the Lord trying to spare my ministry, uh, or, or 
who knows what. But it wasn't recorded, and what I was going to do is come back this time and just give a summation, put all that back together for everybody that didn't get to hear it, and give some more stuff that I had studied out in the meantime, and then open back up for Q&A. The, the problem I have this time is we're getting... Every time we ask for questions, and we don't even ask anymore, but we get questions every day, and there's a group of questions. I'm trying to put them in this group, this group, this group, this group, so I can answer two or five or ten questions at once because we have hundreds and hundreds and over, over 1,500 questions we have now. I'll never answer 1,500 questions. So if I can answer seven or eight or nine at once, that'll get us closer. This group of questions here comes up more and more and more all the time. I, I stopped and looked the other day. I have about 40, maybe 42, 43 questions that fit into this. It's the biggest group, so I thought if we don't take care of this, it's just going to keep growing and growing. And obviously, it's important. Obviously, people want to know or we wouldn't have all these questions. I do want to say thank you to everybody that's been listening in, listening to the podcast, watching the Facebook Live. Uh, several people have sent in donations to help us make sure we keep doing these programs. Anybody that wants to do that, that's wonderful. You can do that at hmaministries.com. And uh, these things, I mean, they cost our money and our time. And if you send things in, we put it directly towards this or similar program. So please, please do support it. That's, that's important as well. Um, I've had all kinds of um, texts and, and emails from the last couple of days. People are going to be listening to this exact podcast in Fayetteville, North Carolina, in uh, Richmond, Kentucky, in Hawaii, in Alaska, in California, in Florida, in Fort Benning, Georgia. Some military men, a few, few military men and women are, are listening like you said you would. Uh, we thank you so much for what you're doing in, uh, in defense of our country. Uh, some some military service people in Fort Sill said they were going to be listening tonight, and uh, we thank you as well, and, and all your brothers and sisters in the military, and uh, just people from all over the country. We got some military men said they were listening in uh, South Korea. We have some missionaries said they were listening in, in South Africa and some other African countries, so it's it's wonderful. The I mean, this is a technology that God has blessed us with the knowledge as humanity to use, and we need to use it. And uh, I appreciate the fact that we're able to do this. Uh, I need to get into this very quickly. I won't slow down probably and talk as much as I have been. It's a long piece of material. It's Again, I think it's very important, and I'm just going to read as fast as I can without losing clarity, hopefully. Because there's 40-some questions that I'm holding right now, just so you can kind of get your... Uh, your mind's wrapped around how I package these questions together to give one string of answer. I'm going to read you just uh, what I did was I, I picked four uh, out of the 40-some questions that I'm trying to answer all in just this podcast, this Bible study tonight. The first question that I ever received um, on this actually is the whole summation. What is the church actually supposed to be doing? That was one of the very first questions we ever received at Next Bible Study Podcast. What is the church actually supposed to be doing? We also have this question. Am I the only one that is noticing that most churches are slowly but surely shrinking, yet they are still acting like their program and their doctrine is right, and we're still moving forward or at least holding our own, and somehow not acknowledging that the church gets smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker? 
Question number three that I put down here is, uh, um, and this is actually from, from somebody in our, in our fellowship, I am a convert to a Pentecostal church. I am the only one in our church that has gotten saved in years. I'm still called the new convert, even though I've been saved for almost four years. Am I still called the new convert because I'm the only one, or at least the newest one? At times, it feels like calling me a new convert is our church's way of justifying our church. Is that true, Brother Sloggett? Is this how it's supposed to be? Is this how it is where you're from? Does someone else have to get saved and become the new convert before I become just a saint? How long does that normally take? Question number four. This is another person I actually know. Uh, I am from a branch of holiness churches that originated in America. We are in South Africa, and our sister churches are in Serbia. The American churches started our South African churches, and the South African churches went with the Americans and started the Serbian churches. Both the South African and the Serbian churches were taught biblical practices, biblical principles by our American missionaries in the 1960s and 1970s. We have since severed all of our ties to the American holiness churches that founded us. It breaks our collective hearts that we live much more closely to what we were taught than the, than the children and grandchildren of those that taught it to us. Listening to your podcast has stirred us much. I think that I understand that there are at least a couple of different sects of the American holiness churches. One that has gone carnal and cares more about herself and her own comforts and one that believes that the teachings of American holiness churches has always been about the outward appearance, the apparel, and where one physically goes and what one physically does, as opposed to what we were actually taught. We were taught by the American holiness churches in the 60s and 70s that Christianity was about complete individual surrender to Jesus Christ and following his teachings. We were taught that his teachings were primarily about love, purity, and service to others. Am I wrong in believing that the American Holiness Church has little to do with these teachings anymore? Is it sporadic? Is it here and there? Is it in large pockets in places that we don't realize? Is it that they are either about comfort and status now, or they are about appearance and duty now, or have we misread the situation? In an attempt to answer these and a couple dozen other questions in either direct or indirect way. Uh, let me take us to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. I'm going to read quite a bit of the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1, but I'll start at verse 4. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But under, unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah 
her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in, in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thine, uh, thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoke hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Last couple of verses, verse 19, And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son, called his name Samuel, said, Behold, I've asked him of the Lord. Lots and lots of reading. We all know it very well. I want to get the full story. Now, let me say from the very start uh, this evening, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, a lot of times I'm referring to the physical womb of a woman as a spiritual reference. And the spiritual reference is as the sanctuary of the church of the living God, the place where we all gather and have church. The sanctuary being the heart of the local church. God blessed womankind with a special place amongst all creation. He gave her the ability to carry out the bringing forth of life. God told man to raise up seed into the earth, but without woman, man could do no such thing. Woman will always have this very special role. Always, as long as there's time and eternity. No amount of lesbianism or transgenderism or test two babies will ever take away the power of the womb. God also made woman particularly attractive so that man would desire her in a manner that would cause reproduction. That is one reason why to this very day women are constantly uh, striving to lose weight and dress nice and be pretty. And it's because a major part of the creation role of a woman is to be attractive enough to be sought after for a reproductive relationship. I know our society hates that, doesn't want to admit that. And that's called very, very, very sexist statement. But you've got to understand that is the creation role. There's other roles in society. But that is the creation role. Now, I definitely have a problem with many of the ways that women are seeking out their beauty in this day and age. But I do still understand some of the built-in motivation behind what they're doing. This role of the womb was so important to God that he actually used it to bring forth his son. The king of all glory 
And that will be the stamp of God's golden seal of approval on the womb of woman for time and eternity. We can look and understand by Revelation 21 and 9 that it says, There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. That relationship is built in, spiritually speaking, also. Just like in physical, natural relations, it is our job as the bride of Christ, the church, to bring forth our husband's children. Get this if you don't get anything else tonight. The church's job is to give birth. The church's job is to give birth. Now, it blows my mind that that is argued, but it is. I've had it argued to my face multiple times in the last 20 years. Well, we're supposed to be doing this, and we're supposed to be separate from the world, and we're supposed to be perfecting the... I get all of that within the context of understanding that our job is to give birth. The church is generally where that is supposed to happen. That is where people are generally supposed to get born again. Now let's look at this Bible account that I just read the, the extent of. Elkanah had two wives, Penaniah and Hannah. I'm never going to say her name right. Penina, that's her name. Whatever I say tonight, her real name's Penina. Penina had already bore children to Elkanah, but Hannah had not. Penina was constantly mocking Hannah because of it. Elkanah knew that this was going on, and he was constantly trying to make up for it by giving her special gifts and treating her better than he did everyone else, including his other wife. I, for fear, that in many ways the church has come to this place where we are barren for long, long periods of time, so we try to make up for it in other areas. We cannot. It is impossible for the church to do anything you can't live so tight, live so right, preach so high, shout so long. You cannot do anything to replace children. We don't need more meetings. We don't need bigger meetings. We don't need prettier curtains or louder speakers or more signage or more choreography. We, we are doing everything in the world at times to appear as if and convince ourselves and convince others as if we are the bride of Christ. The easiest way to convince anybody that we're the bride of Christ is to produce his children. That would, that would settle it once and for all. Well, this church thinks they're the real church. Well, this church thinks they got the right doctrine. Well, this church, where's God's children? Whatever body is producing the real children of Christ is, is the bride. That's the church. We even have those among us now that are trying to reverse psychology on themselves. They say things like, well, you can get a crowd if you just let the standard down. What standard? Whose standard? What, what I think they assume that they're meaning by you can get a crowd if you let the standard down is if you let the standard of Jesus Christ down, more people will come. Isn't that what they, that's what we think they think they're saying, right? I have a huge problem with that. I have a biblical problem with that. 
Because if you're talking about the standard of men, then, then go have yourself a little cult if you want to. I really don't care. But, but if you're talking about the standard of Christ, show me one time in Scripture where Christ didn't raise a crowd. Start when he was born and end after he resurrected and went back to the Father and show me one time Jesus Christ showed up in public and didn't raise a crowd. They loved him. They hated him. They tried to figure him out. They tried to trap him, but they always followed him. If a crowd is worldly, then I ask you, was Jesus Christ worldly? Because he always had a crowd. Holiness is attractive to humanity. A, a lot of people that I go to church with don't believe that. A lot of people that you fellowship don't believe that, that holiness is attractive to humanity. It is because Jesus was the most holy man that ever lived. And humans were attracted to him. Christ was the holiest man that ever walked the earth, and people flocked to Jesus Christ. Holiness is attractive to humanity. It is the opposite of sin, and people are weary and tired and miserable and broken by their sin, and they are drawn to anything that is the real cure for what ails them. Listen to me right here real close. If what you call holiness repels people, it is not what Jesus had. Whatever it is that you define as holiness, if it repels people, lost people, ugly people, mean people, tattooed people, I don't care, lesbian people, if what you have that you call holiness repels people, it's not what Jesus had. Because the lost, the hurting, the broken, the hip. The hypocrites, they were all drawn to Jesus. Jesus wants souls. He wants children. That's why he came. That's what he trained disciples to do. And that's the job that's been passed down to us is to produce souls for Jesus. So what do we do about it? If we know that's our job, how come we're not always fully figuring it out? Well, it is in some direct places, in some smaller places, especially in the New Testament, but it is, it is in some big, broad places in the Old Testament, too, that you gotta, you got to really see it for what it is. Look at our text. In, in verse 6, Hannah fretted. In verse 7, she wept and fasted. In verse 8, she grieved. In verse 10 and 12, she prayed and cried. In verse 15 and 16, she complained of a broken heart. In verse 17, God answered. In verse 18, she stopped her fast and was no longer sad. In verse 19, she worshipped him. In verse 19 also, the Bible says that her husband knew her. And in verse 20, she brought forth a child. This is a process. The church needs to do some very specific things. And a lot of times the church thinks they're doing them, but they have to do them for the right reasons and in the right ways. Everybody knows we need to pray, right? What should we be praying for? Souls. <laughs> the church needs to pray for souls. Hannah was not praying for a newer house. 
Hannah was not praying for a better relationship with her, her, other, her husband's other wife. She was praying to produce life. The church needs to pray for souls. The church needs to fast for souls. The church needs to be broken and grieved for souls until God answers. And then when he answers, then we can rejoice. Then we can live out our right relationship with our Lord, Savior, Bridegroom, because we have found our rightful place in his life. I, I, I'm not throwing this up at anybody. I guarantee you they're not listening to this podcast and you don't know who I'm talking about. But I was in a church sometime in the last few years here in America. I know for a fact they were running about 300 about 15 years before I got there. They were running 11 when I got there. And they were running a 30-day fast for the whole church. A 30-day fast for the whole church. All 11 of them were fasting for, 11, for, for 30 days. I happened to ask what they were fasting for. They were fasting that the property line that kind of comes crooked and kind of messes up the straight line on the end of their property where their church, they're fasting that God would somehow move on that man or move on the government or, or help them come up with a way that they could straighten out that line. As soon as I knew that, Y'all call me whatever you want to call me. As soon as I knew that, I knew why they went from 300 to 11. Church needs to pray for souls. Church needs to fast for souls. The church needs to work for souls. The church needs to look for souls. The church's programs need to specifically be about souls. Once all of that comes into play and we're producing children again, look at verse 8. Then said Elkanah, her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Did you ever catch that? I'm sure you did, Pastor. Am I not better to thee than ten sons? I've read that a hundred times and it, I, I finally it just... Hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, why are you crying? Why are you fasting? Why are you grieved? I'm giving you things. I'm blessing you with stuff. I'm making sure that you are highly respected and admired among your peers and you're dressed beautifully and everybody does things for you. Isn't that enough? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? What? Are you kidding me? Ask any mother in this room right now if she would take any amount of stuff for her sons or her daughters. Just pick any one of these children and go to the parent and say, I'll give you two brand new trucks and three brand new cars and I'll build you a three-story house and I'll make you the, the mayor of downtown Tulsa if you just, just give up that kid. What was he thinking? That's what he asked his wife. He asked his wife, am I not treating you good enough and giving you enough stuff that you can forget about having a kid? And am I not better? Better than what? Better than souls? Is the church finally satisfied with stuff over souls? 
Is the church finally satisfied that if we can build a big enough sanctuary and, and, and get enough of the right key things and, and, and get the songs right and the sound right and the choir right and the preaching right and the fellowship right, that, that we can get past being so heartbroken that nobody really gets saved here anymore? Is the church finally satisfied with stuff over souls? Oh, I'm just trying to work it out and wait till I get this, this duck in a row and this, this thing lined and these people taken care of. And so, so what is it that we're, we're, we're satisfied with over souls? Is it politics? Is it, is it uh, getting along with family? Is it, is it, where are we putting forth our efforts as a church that we don't have the efforts we need to bring forth birth. Are you asking Elkanah if a brand new church with a fancy sanctuary and separate Sunday school buildings and a big nice office for the pastor and a newly remodeled parsonage is better? Better than what? Better than souls? Are you asking if being highly respected among the men of the movement and having your name on all kinds of boards is better? Better than what? Better than souls? Are you asking me of having a perfectly outlined doctrine of memorization, justification, and qualification for all your members and all your fellowshipping bodies is better? Better than what? Better than souls? No. Not to the church of Jesus Christ. The, the comparison, I'm not making this comparison. God made this comparison. The comparison that God made is you take a woman that longs to have a baby, that can't have a baby, and that misery that you can't fix with nothing, no cruise, no, no steak dinner, no, no new dresses, there's nothing you can do to quench that agony except help her find a way to have a baby. That's where the church is supposed to be. Elkanah knew what the problem was. He wasn't stupid. But he was still trying to smooth it over and, and say sweet things like, baby, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. I love you. It's not your fault, darling. I still love you more. That had to be tricky because he had two wives. <laughs> this is one of them times I'm glad I was born in the New Testament era. But it did matter. Hannah knew in the depth of her soul that she was a woman and she had a purpose. And that purpose called to her every day and every night. And nothing made it better until she fulfilled the calling of her creation purpose. She thought she was here for a reason and you couldn't fix her life until she could fulfill that reason. We do some of the same things that Elkanah did. We say things like, well, we're two or three are gathered. I hate that phrase the way we use that. I love the text in context in the Bible, but, but I hate the way we abuse it. We say, well, people just don't want to hear the truth anymore. All of these excuses shouldn't matter. The church was called out. 
given the tools and a job and a purpose to fulfill. And we should be miserable. I know this isn't the kind of teaching and preaching that is, uh, a lot of people are wanting and, and that are swaying the masses. But, but the truth of the matter is, if churches continue to shrink, Christians should be miserable. We should be agonizing. We should be brokenhearted. We should be fasting and praying until we fulfill what we were sent to do. Bring forth children. Listen, you can dress up a sanctuary as fancy as you want. I have seen some of the most gorgeous sanctuaries. But I've also been in some other places that just look like a, a barn with some paint on it. And nothing dresses up a sanctuary like a lit up smile from ear to ear. Born again, just got delivered, new convert. Nothing gives a congregation a better reason to shout and dance than a family put back together with the power of the Holy Ghost. There is no better reason to throw a party than for a local drug dealer's one-year conversion anniversary or the birthday party of a three-year-old girl that was almost an abortion, but the church stepped in and mama got saved. I've seen converts get saved at two little bitty churches in Idaho, four miles apart, at nursing homes, at street corners, in my vehicles, in churches all over this area, all over the country. And every single time it happens, how new the seats were, how well the mics worked, if there were brand new chandeliers or wallpaper falling off the walls, didn't matter at all. Every time, whether it was a two and a half million dollar sanctuary and one time it was, or it was an old shack that should have been pushed over before we had service in it that night, and it has and it was, and every single time, at least, I can speak for at least two of us, at least me and the person that just got saved felt like we were six inches off the streets of gold. Back where I come from, we had a whole bunch of little troubled churches scattered all around with two or three feuding families trying to control the little church and a handful of young preachers taking turns getting voted in and then getting run off and making their way around and around the little circuit again. And I've seen it everywhere else since I left Idaho. Every time a new preacher takes... One of these little dead, dried-up churches, he always does pretty much the same thing. He remodels the sanctuary, repaints the outside of the church, builds them a, a modern-type steeple, and puts new sod down and pours new concrete and paints them a new sign. And I always ask myself the same question, why? Why? I know, I know. He's trying to win the respect of the people and get some new excitement going on in the local congregation to cause the fellowship to think that he's really making things happen and changing the environment. I get it. I really, really do get it. But in my humble opinion, it's mostly a waste of time. For several reasons. First of all, it gives the congregation a false sense of pride and a false sense of hope. 
Also, it sets a precedence for the next guy to waste more money and more effort and more time. And most importantly, it is absolutely the exact opposite of what the preacher should be doing. If the church wanted new carpet, they should have put some in. You don't need a pastor to put in carpet. If a church wants a new sign, they should put one up. You don't need a pastor to put up a sign. If, the, if you do need a pastor for that to keep the peace between the two sides, then you're not saved and you shouldn't be running a church while you're lost. A new pastor should be knocking on doors and visiting the sick and the elderly and developing a children's bus route and preaching in the local jail. Why? Because if you want real unity and real excitement and you want people to believe that you're really changing the environment, get someone saved. That changes the environment inside and out. New blood is always what the church has needed. I know some don't like that. That's crazy. But it's true. I remember I did a conference one time, had a bunch of pastors and a bunch of church leaders and stuff there, and I asked them to raise their hand, and I went around and, and called on the different ones, and I asked them how many people have been saved in your church in the last 10 years or the last five years or the last seven years or whatever, and they, off the top of their head, did the best they could and answered. And then I said, okay, now one more question. How many have got saved in your church in the last, whatever I said, five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever it was, and, and I said, that didn't already go there before or isn't directly in the household related to somebody that already went there before. Now, the first time I asked the question, I, you know, maybe third to half of them. And the second time I asked the question, almost nobody. I don't remember if it was one or two. And I under, don't, don't get me wrong. I understand that that makes sense to an extent because you know your family better than you know anybody else. And we know our circle and our group and people that we work with and we have employed and, and, and people we've gone to church with better than we know anybody else. But the larger a church is, the less that's a good excuse. As the church grows, it should be growing into efforts because you have more and more and more manpower and more and more and more influence, more and more people in the community. It should be growing farther and farther and farther out. New blood is what the church needs. I'm not against a good remodel or a church expansion, but come up with a good reason first. I literally just talked to a few days ago, young preacher, that is completely remodeling and expanding a sanctuary that right now holds about 100 people that when they're done will hold about 140. And there's still 16 people going to church there. Why not do some real New Testament biblical evangelism and run that thing up to about 75 or so and then knock a wall out? Why not have a reason Hannah could have dressed better and said, I'm okay, I'm okay. Look at me, I got on a brand new dress. She don't. Yeah, she's got kids, but she ain't dressed like I'm dressed. She dressed more like my handmaid than the other wife. She could have spent more money 
and by uh, Elkanah's, by reading about Elkanah, I'm sure she could have spent more money and, and fixed the place up and, and, and done a bunch of things and spent all, and done all kinds of things and said, everything's fine. Look at all this great, look at what's going on in my life. Look at the house. Look at the servants. Look at my dresses. Look at, don't tell me something's wrong with me. I'm living better than a lot of you. She could have lost weight. She could have wore makeup. She could have put big gold hoop earrings on. She could have got some strong young men to carry her around on a pillow uh, 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 and, and wore silk and chiffon all day and all night or whatever. But the bottom line was she was not serving her purpose, and she knew it. And so did everyone else because she produced no results of having the right relationship with her husband, and that's all she cared about. And when that's all a church cares about, it shows because one of two things happen. Either they start having children or they're miserable because they're not. And when any church, any body of Christ is not doing one of the other, something's terribly wrong. The American church is doing the same thing. We overshadow new births with just numbers. We play down the necessity of new births with cleaner, stricter living or, or bigger, flashier programs or more polished services or fancier, more technologically advanced equipment. We even decide sometimes that more Holy Ghost is what is needed. Listen, we all know these things are good. We all know these things are right. Numbers, numbers are good. We want numbers, right? We want a crowd. Clean, holy living is good, right? The Holy Ghost is absolutely needful, right? Technology can be extremely useful. We've already proven that. But we're not in tune with the Spirit of God unless we're putting forth as much effort as we can to bring in the lost. And oftentimes we're so busy doing all these other things as church bodies all around the country that we acknowledge we don't have enough time or people, or money, or effort, normally time, to really reach for the lost like we know we should be because of all these other things we've already built into our day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. Technology can be extremely useful. It is right here tonight. But we're not in tune with the Spirit of God without putting forth as much effort as possible to bring in the lost. Better singing, fancier environments, stricter enforcement, none of these things are the biblical ingredients to soul winning. And none of these things has ever worked as sustainable kingdom growth. Look at Revelation 22 and 16. I, I Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit of the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You know what? One of the primary keys to soul winning is, always has been, and always will be. The invitation. Every major denomination that has grown exponentially over the last hundred years or so has one major factor in common. 
whether they were biblical or non-biblical, cultic or non-cultic, American culture, Western civilized culture, or, or Asian culture, or European culture. It didn't, it didn't matter if it was Catholic, if it was Mormon, if it was Baptist. They all had one major factor in common, and that was their unbelievable focus on the invitation. They knew if we invite 50 people to church, only one comes. So that told them if we invite 100 to church, two will come. If we invite 1,000 to church, 20 will come. So we need to invite next year 50,000 to church so that 500 will come. The unbelievable focus on the invitation. If it didn't rub me wrong, it would almost be humorous. So many churches that are so frustrated that nobody's coming. The question is, who did you invite? <laughs> oh, yeah, that. How many of y'all heard of the knuckleheads that say, well, it says out on the sign. Everyone welcome. It says that on the sign out in front of the church where most independent free holiness churches in America, about 30 people drive by that sign every week. Because the church is out in somebody's cow pasture. 40 miles from town. That made all kinds of sense. I, I got to ask these questions because I'm talking to thousands of people here. Does your home church have an incredible focus on inviting people to church? Do they stand up in the pulpit and remind you of the focus of inviting people to church? Is the Sunday school program, is the, is the adult Bible class, is the, is the midweek Bible study, is, the, is it built in? Is there a mechanism there that uses those different groups as tools to invite people to church? I ask another question, would you dare invite someone to church? I did a poll one time on online about why a lot of people weren't being invited to a lot of churches and blew my mind that one third of the people said that the reason they invite so few people to church is because they would be embarrassed of what those people would see and hear if they came to their church. That's the world we're living in. That's the American Christian, Euro Western 21st century church system we're living in. If you wouldn't invite people to your church, I'm not picking on just this crowd right here in front of my face. But if you wouldn't invite people to church, why are you going to that church? I mean, that just seems like common sense to me. I got in a lot of trouble several different times because I, people come to me and they want counseling about these kind of things and we talk to them about it. And when they get around to telling me of some things going on in their church that they don't want other people. I, I, I say, you need to leave. You need to leave. That's ridiculous. 
And then it gets out sometimes, and they come back, and they say, how dare you tell somebody to leave my, you proselyte, or you whatever, whatever, whatever. Look, even if I was the pastor, and even if you were going to my church, if I thought, I, I know my pastor, I guarantee you he feels this way, because we've talked about it. If he thought his ministry was killing you, hurting you, crippling you, he would beg you to go somewhere else that you felt like you could get help. Do you go to a church that doesn't have a major focus on invitation because your church currently has other priorities? Why? What priorities? Over souls? Who in the world would call themselves a church and not have the priorities of a church? I had somebody answer me this question one time. They said that they felt like uh, there was people in the church that, that felt like certain people that this person would have invited, that they maybe didn't want those people there because uh, they were lower class or whatever, however you want to look at it. But they said that, they said, well, some of our people, um, we kind of feel like our church is, is too good for certain people to get saved there. And they said nobody would ever say that. Nobody, I can't imagine somebody actually saying that, but that's the way these people felt. And the thought come to my mind, well, was the church too good for them when they got saved there? That, that, this just doesn't make any sense. That's not how Christ designed it. So I got to move on. We can pretend all we want to, but we know the truth. And as a matter of fact, so does everyone else. We do not have the right relationship with our husband, Jesus, if we're not producing the right results. And the right results are children born into the kingdom, period. Until our collective hearts are disturbed, broken, anguished to the point of despair, as Hannah's was, and we cling to that desperate need of meeting our purpose as the New Testament church, we come up short. We must become a Rachel of Genesis chapter 30 in this environment. The church as a whole is not a Rachel of Genesis chapter 30. And until they get back to being that, we come up short. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Would your church go along all right? Everybody listening to me on Facebook, everybody basically listening to me on the podcast, everybody sitting here in, in my store right now, would your church get along just fine and do just great in, in two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? Would everything just be rocking on just fine, still having church, still good preaching, still good shouting, still good, everything just fine, if you didn't produce any souls? Most churches, I know, I feel like that's true. That if nobody got saved there for the next 10 years, they would still be just clicking right along. Everything would be fine. Instead of being the Rachel of Genesis chapter 3, give me children or else I die. I mean, it looked like Rachel would have had it made. She was basically married to a prince. 
But she knew that she was here as a mother, as a bearer of life, to have her creation-intended relationships with her God-ordained husband, and it wasn't happening, and it drove her. Is the lack of new births in the church driving anyone? Driving you to what? Or if not, why not? Are you satisfied with an environment where that is not happening or it is happening so very little? If you are, why? Are you part of the problem? Are you propping up the problem? Proverbs 30 and 15 said, The horse leech hath two daughters, crying, Give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not it is enough. The grave and the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not it is enough. This is an incredible comparison. I don't know if you all ever seen a forest fire. California, we had several when I lived there. It just, that fire just grew and grew and grew and grew over days and days, sometimes weeks, and it looked like it was just going to consume the whole state of California, maybe eventually make its way to Washington, D.C. It just seemed like there was nothing that could stop it. That's a comparison to the barren womb. The fire that just eats you up, that just inflames you, that just grows and grows and grows within you. The all-consumingness of it all, that I've got to do what I'm here to do. I hear it all over the country. They don't, they don't want what we have. Are you kidding me? Does that make sense to anybody? If what you have is, is cultic, watered-down, over-exaggerated, hypocritical, then you're right. Nobody wants that. But if what you have is the love and holiness of Jesus Christ, yes, they do want that. Everybody wants that. They want nothing else. Are you telling me that a druggie wouldn't want clean, that a prostitute wouldn't want free, that a kid raised in a neighborhood where the average 16-year-old has already started drinking, smoking, experimenting with drugs, has already started into lying and stealing, has already gotten someone pregnant or had an abortion? Are you telling me they don't want more options? They don't want better choices. We may, we may have come up a little in a little happy, churchy, religious, fairly well-to-do environment perhaps where we were taught and indoctrinated from, from young people all around people that look like us and know us and hang out with us and do like we do. That we are the right ones in the world and everybody else is wrong. And if that's true, then sometimes our blessings are to our own detriment. Listen, don't misunderstand me. I would never want my children or my grandchildren to come up like I did. But at the same time, I don't want them to misunderstand and misrepresent the blessings of God that they didn't have to. I ain't bragging, y'all. I was raised rough. I didn't get saved until I was 25. But don't you think for one second that this isn't what I was looking for the whole time? 
every second of every day, playing basketball, running the streets, involved in the gangs, getting all the different types of illegal highs that we could get our hands on. Don't think for one second that this isn't what I was looking for. I just didn't know about it yet. I would have taken it way sooner if given the opportunity. And there's a whole bunch more Todd Sloggins out there. They live next to us. They purchase from us. They sell to us. Their kids go to school with some of our kids. They're everywhere. Surely someone else here was lost before they got saved. Anybody? And can remember it. If you can remember what it's like to be lost, there's a whole bunch more yous out there. And it is not right for us to not go find them. I, I probably need to do a whole other podcast just on how a, how a church should go about soul winning correctly. But let me just throw one huge point out here and then I'll stop. and We can take some Q&A if that's what you want and kick some of this around. But don't be surprised when people don't come or don't come back. When you are a fully functioning church, but you're not specifically geared to receive visitors, guests, or the lost. Don't, don't hypocritically act like, I can't figure out why nobody's coming. I can't figure out why they never came back. I can't figure out where everybody's at. When you never spent 15 minutes figuring out, deciding, calculating, and knowing how you were going to receive them when they did come. This is not about just you and me, how smart we are, how our Facebook page works, how technology works, how, how schmoozing and, 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 and politics and everything. There is a God involved in all of this. There is a God involved in all of this. What I'm saying is, if you don't get prepared to receive them, don't be shocked if God doesn't send them. Think about this. If you're going to adopt a baby in the United States, uh, you normally get a representative of the government agency to visit your home to see how prepared you are for the baby. And if you have no nursery and if you have no crib and if you have no blankets and you have no toys and you have no heat, uh, that representative may come to the conclusion that the agency shouldn't send a baby to your home. We all agree, right? Right. Now, God sends a representative to every one of our church services. The Holy Spirit of God. He's looking for a sign that this is where one of his babies should be sent to. Are these people expecting a baby? Do they have people specifically in place to welcome a visitor? Are there gifts prepared to give to the guest? Is there teaching and discipleship and follow-up already in place to train up a new convert? Or are people surprised when a guest shows up here? Do they scramble around to know what to do with that guest? 
or are they just ignored? Can you imagine an adoption agency sending a baby to a home where everybody works full-time, no one is home during the day, the furnace is out, and they've got some little electric heaters plugged in, there's no food in the cupboard? Of course not. We would think that's insane. Then why are we so surprised that God isn't sending any more babies to churches that are busy with everything except being prepared to raise babies? There is a, there's, there's of course, far more to it than this. But I do know this much. Babies are sent to parents that are diligently seeking for babies to be sent to them. And to parents that have environments that are prepared for babies. And it's the same way with the church. If we're not going to be out seeking them, and if we're not going to be prepared to receive them, it would only make sense to me that we would get exactly what we prepared for. And one thing I wish would happen here, I personally know dozens and dozens and dozens of pastors that believe that they are prepared, but that their people aren't doing New Testament biblical outreach. They're not doing the seeking and the pastor really doesn't know why. I know a lot of people in that boat. But I also know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of saints that are doing the seeking and the boots on the ground evangelism. But they're so frustrated that the pastors and the leaderships and the home churches aren't getting ready to receive them. So it, it, it seems to be back and forth or both ways or one or the other. And what I really wish would happen is that the two sides would come together and figure out what each other's issues are and attempt to solve them together. And, and of course, it needs to be initiated from the leadership side. And, and, and if you can't do that, oh, I got to be careful again. I'm going to be completely transparent here. What I'm about to say comes from a conversation I just had with somebody in the last few hours. But I'm going to say it anyway because I'm sure it applies to a whole lot of people in this country. These types of solutions are not going to come very often or very well from the ground up. Now, I love the swell of interest and, and hunger from the younger generation that's happening around here. I love it. It's not just happening here. It's happening everywhere. This is God doing this across the board. And it's wonderful because it's going gonna, it's gonna to put a lot of pressure on, on people like Pastor and me and, and Brother Junior and, and Brother Todd. and that It's going to put a lot of pressure on leadership to get this as right as possible instead of, just put it on the back burner, put it on the back burner, put it on the back burner because there's really, I mean, it's not, it's not bothering anybody right now anyway. So this is great. But truly to do it correctly across the board in Indiana and Ohio and, and Germany and, and, and South Africa and Georgia and Alabama, really the leadership needs to initiate it. Because if leadership doesn't lead, then, then why are they in leadership? And that was the question that the conversation I just had with this individual early this afternoon. 
I don't want to say that because he's probably listening. I don't want him to feel like I just threw that out there and, and wasn't acknowledging that in my mind. I currently know of multiple places where one side or the other, or in some cases even both sides, have had the conversation about moving forward and being this New Testament birthing station, but there are too many obstacles that aren't being addressed. And, and they could be. They could be. When I've brought this up to a handful of pastors, four, five, six pastors here and there over the last year or two, uh, it, it blows my mind to find out that they agree that this probably should happen, that this is, there's a better way and that it needs to come together, but there's just, just not enough time. Really? There's not enough time to get the church right? Yeah, I, I shouldn't say my answer to that on the air. Y'all could guess. People talk to me all the time. They're afraid to invite folks because of what's regularly preached or because old crazy sister so-and-so might scare them off or the, the pastor told us to go do it, but he never explained to us what it is. Or there are so many priorities to get to. The, the new furnace the playground equipment, the camp meeting board, the youth rally, the electrical bill, on and on and on, that we never actually get around to the reason why we're really here. What would it matter if we get a new furnace? I'm not, I know y'all are almost all from the same church. Please understand, I'm talking to the country. What would it matter if we got a new furnace, a new playground equipment, and a bigger camp meeting and all of that if we never get around to doing what we're here to do? That's all I'm asking. I wish some group somewhere would get together and say, we want to talk about restructuring what we do on this property and make sure that it is about growing the kingdom first and building around that. We want the signage, the sermons, the windows, the pews, the classes, the positions. We want them about growing the kingdom. Are they all being used to the best of our ability to accomplish the entire reason why we even exist? I'd love to see that. Have you ever been to a store, but no one was around to check you out? You had the product that you wanted, and you're ready to buy it, and you got your money in your hand. But everybody that works at that store is in the office doing books or up on a ladder changing a light bulb or in the back counting stock. And sometimes I feel like that's where the church is. I feel like there's folk that want to get saved. And they're just waiting for us to come down off the ladder, quit changing the light bulb, and come back out of the back room and quit counting the inventory and, and get out of the office and quit balancing the checkbook and find them. On a hillside outside Jerusalem Jesus gathered those that meant so much to him. He said the time has come for me to go away, but I'll come again someday. Then they heard him say, he said,
eyes Don't turn away, don't pass them by But hear the Father's cry and say, I'll